So we'll be in Genesis 39 this morning. Go ahead and turn there. We'll get there in a second. But first, let me ask you a question as you're turning there. Why do the righteous suffer? This is a question asked by many. Um, I'm sure you've asked this question possibly yourself. And we ask this question because we live in a world where injustice occurs. There are times when people are punished for wrongdoing, although they're innocent. This is a very minor illustration, so forgive me if it seems trivial, but I, when I was a junior in high school, I was penalized because someone cheated off my test. Now, I had no idea that this guy was looking over my shoulder, um, but when I received my test grade, what do you think I got? Zero. Now, the situation worked itself out, um, but still, there are times when life seems unfair. And so many ask, where's God in the midst of this? How could he allow injustices? How could he allow such an injustice to happen to me? So how come the righteous suffer while the wicked seemingly get away with murder? Now, I realize that's an overstatement, but that does not negate the reality that there are times when the wicked come out unscathed while the righteous suffer greatly. And that's what we have here in Genesis 39. Joseph, he lives righteously before the Lord. He remains faithful to God. He does not dishonor God, nor does he dishonor the marriage covenant between Potiphar and his wife. He's faithful, doesn't give in to temptation. And what is his reward? Prison. Potiphar's wife, on the other hand, she's the adulterous woman. She lies, cheats, she bears false witness against Joseph. But as we see in this chapter, at least now here, she gets away scot-free. Just doesn't seem fair. Joseph does what is right, yet he's falsely accused of wrongdoing by the one who actually does wrong. And as a result, ends up in prison, imprisoned, going to jail. Not only has he already lost his freedom, but now he's going further and further down into the pit. But as we will see here, and as we see throughout, really, the, Gen the Joseph cycle in Genesis, he doesn't question God. He doesn't turn his back on God. In fact, as we're reminded in the next couple of chapters in chapters 40 and 41, Joseph remains faithful to God through it all. And why does he remain faithful? Because God is faithful. God is with him. God's faithfulness, God is faithful to his promises, faithful to be with his people. His faithfulness, God's faithfulness, is not dependent upon what we think our circumstances ought to be. As such, when Joseph is thrown into prison, we read in verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. I mean, how amazing this is. The righteous, in this case, Joseph, the righteous suffers injustice, yet God is with him and shows him steadfast love. So this passage here is, is an encouragement for us. It's an encouragement while we suffer in this present age. 
Some of us may be suffering now. Some might be minor. Some might be major. Some might not be suffering at the moment, but we will suffer. And as we suffer, we can be reminded that God does not turn his back on his children. In fact, as we learn from Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So if you're not already there, go ahead and turn to Genesis 39. I'm going to read our passage, and as I do, I want you to look and notice how God is with Joseph in his time of trouble. So pick up in verse 11 and go down to the end of the chapter. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. This is God's word. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning through the Son and by the Spirit, and we marvel at the intricacies of your glory. You are like none other, and there is none like you. You are infinite in power, yet tender and delicate with your children. And we are blessed to be called your children, to have you as our Father. Oh, make us aware that there is nowhere we can go that you were not there. And there is nothing that can separate us from your steadfast love. And because you love us, we approach your throne of grace and we bring our petitions to you.
So help us to grow in our love for you and in our love for one another. Make us dissatisfied with the things of this world. Strengthen our marriages. Give us godly homes. Grant us contentment no matter what we are going through and open our eyes to see the wonderful things in your word this morning. Pray you would help us. Pray you would help me. I pray that you would guard my mouth, that I would be faithful, that we would be faithful in our hearing of your word, that we'd be faithful in the doing of your word. Be with us this morning, I pray. So before we jump in here, it'll be helpful for us just to review, to remember um, last week's sermon. Um, last week, the, the, or the sermon text, mind, mind you, the, we were in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 39, and we saw here that Joseph was brought down to Egypt. He was sold as a slave into Potiphar's house. Potiphar is the captain of Pharaoh's guard. And so while Joseph was sold to Potiphar as a slave... We also learn here in verse 2 that the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with him and he blessed his work. And Potiphar recognized this. Potiphar recognized that the Lord was with Joseph. And so he placed him in charge of his entire household. As a result, the Lord caused Potiphar to prosper. And not only did Potiphar prosper, but as we see in verse 6, he left all in Joseph's charge, and he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. So Joseph was a slave in Egypt. He was elevated in the house of Potiphar, but that's not all. That's not where we stopped. That's not where the narrative stops here, because as we see at the end of verse 6, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. This isn't a note just to tell us that Joseph was a good-looking man. This is because of what is to happen next. Verse 7, his master's wife cast her eye on Joseph. She seduced him. She tempted him day after day, yet he resisted day after day. He says in verse 9, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So for Joseph, this would not only be sin against his earthly master, this would be sin against God. Joseph lived quorum Deo, that is, before the face of God. And so therefore, he resisted her daily temptation. And so he could, as we mentioned last week, he could not escape this temptation. Because it was, as we see in verse 10, she spoke to Joseph day after day. He's a slave, remember that. He can't escape his circumstances here, but he can resist. And he does. He resists every single day. And that brings us to our passage this morning. And so, as usual, you can find the outline on, verse, or on page five of your worship guide. Just, we'll go through this real quick. So in verses 11 and 12, we're going to see Joseph fleeing sexual immorality. Joseph will provide us is, with a really good... Um, illustration of Paul's words, of Paul's commands in 1 Corinthians 6, flee sexual immorality. Joseph does. He literally flees from sexual immorality. 
So we'll spend some time discussing that whenever we're in those first couple of verses. Then in verses 13 and 18, or 13 through 18, we see false accusations being made against Joseph. So when we consider these verses, we're going to spend a little bit of time considering false allegations or serious allegations that are brought our way. And then also considering what happens, what we should, what should be our posture whenever false accusations are made against us. And as a result of these false accusations in verses 19 and 20, we'll see Joseph, he's thrown into prison. And while Joseph is not Christ, he is a type of Christ who suffers for righteousness sake. He does not do wrong here, and yet he is suffering. And as this passage concludes in verses 21 through 23, we are reminded of God's covenantal love and his providential hand. Here we see the steadfast love of God and the providential hand of God as he orchestrates all things according to the counsel of his will. So just to reiterate what we'll see this morning, we will see Joseph flee temptation. We will see false accusations hurled at Joseph. We will see Joseph suffer for righteousness sake. And lastly, we will be reminded of the steadfast love of God which is on display here as Joseph is thrown into prison. So now that you have an idea of where we are, let's jump in and we remember here that Joseph is being tempted day by day and then in verse 11, but one day. Remember, day by day, he's being tempted by Potiphar's wife, but one day on this particular day, as we see here in verse 11, he enters the house All the men of the household, they're nowhere in sight. They're not in the house. He enters the house. And on this day, Potiphar's wife grabs him by the garment and says, lie with me. And in verse 12, we see that he left his garment in her hand and he fled and got out of the house. So he does not give in to her seductive advancements. He will not be lured by the temptress. He literally flees and does not turn his back. She grabs hold of him. She says, come to me, and he flees, not even giving it a second thought. Such an illustration of what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, flee from sexual immorality, because when we give a second thought, when we give a second glance, we've already been defeated. That's why Joseph here is such a good illustration. He flees, doesn't turn back. He doesn't look back. He doesn't think, should I? What am I missing out on? He flees. Because as we know, as we know from Scripture, sexual immorality is not a foe to be flirted with. Joseph will not flirt with this sin. Sexual immorality is a foe from which we must flee. Sexual sin, I've I've said this before, is not to be taken lightly. No sin is, but sexual sin in the culture we live in, a hyper-sexualized culture, sexual sin, which we are bombarded with temptations, is not to be taken lightly. It's not something we just put our hand in the cookie jar and say, you know what, I'm not going to give in. No, we flee. 
1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Sexual sin is serious. Joseph will not give in because sexual sin is so serious and he'd be sinning against God. But with sexual sin, it's sin against the body and our bodies were not made for sexual immorality. What were our bodies made for? As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, our bodies are made for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Therefore, sexual immorality is akin to offering an unclean animal on the altar under the Mosaic Covenant. It'd be like offering a pig on the altar. If you know any history, the intertestamental history, you'll know that Antiochus IV, in 168 BC, he comes into Jerusalem and he offers a pig on the altar. What happens? Well, it leads to the Maccabean revolt because they were outraged that this man came in and he desecrated the temple. He did something abominable. It was an abomination to that which was set apart as holy. And that is what happens when we sin against the body, our bodies in this way. Sexual sin is to sin against that which God has set apart for holy use. All sin defiles, but as Paul says, every other sin is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Therefore, flee from sexual immorality. When I was younger, I used to keep note cards in my pocket. This is before smartphones. You didn't have, couldn't pull up your, your Bible. Um, so I kept Bible verses just on note cards in my pocket. One of those I kept was a part of 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. I bring this to mind because while, so, while all of us, every single one of us are prone to sexual sin, young people, you are especially prone to sexual sin. Young people in particular are prone to chase after temporary pleasures because you fail to see the danger that is looming around the corner. Young people are naive to the destruction that is brought about by the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Young people like all of us forego the joy that is to be found in Christ for temporary joy and destructive pleasures. Therefore, we are all, young, old alike, we are all commanded in Scripture to flee sexual immorality just as Joseph did. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 22, Paul instructs Timothy, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So as I noted last week, accounts like this here in Genesis 39 remind us that victory is possible. We can flee temptation. We can overcome. Why? Because we live under the new covenant established by Christ and he overcame. 
We can overcome in Christ. We don't walk around defeated. We are more than conquerors in Christ. We don't walk around as though sin is irresistible. No, it's God's grace that is irresistible, not your sin. In Christ, we can and we will overcome. We are not defeated in that way. Look to Christ. Trust in him. Have your eyes set upon him, not upon the sin. If my eyes set upon the temptation in front of me, I'm going to be defeated. I'm already defeated because I'm looking at the wrong thing. But we are not those who walk around gloomy as though we are just waiting to be defeated by temptation and overcome. No, because we are in Christ who overcame. Our strength is not in ourselves. Our strength is in Christ. And so as we consider Joseph and we think about him in this moment, we can say that he feared God more than he feared missing out on temporary pleasure. Back in verse nine, he says, he cannot sin against the Lord. How could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He fears the Lord. He's living quorum Deo before the Lord. But his fear of the Lord, his godly way of life, it stirs up the hatred of Potiphar's wife. She doesn't get what she wanted. She's wanting Joseph. And now she's going to seek to tear him down. Dr. George Lawson, who lived during the 18th, 19th centuries, he said, she could not ruin Joseph's soul, but she will, if possible, ruin his body and will spare no lies nor hypocrisy to attain her purpose. And as we see in verses 13 through 15 here, Potiphar's wife, she realizes that Joseph left his garment when he fled. So she calls out to the men of the house, And she essentially turns the script on Joseph. She told them that Joseph was the one who seduced her. And when she screamed, then he fled and left his garment. Look at verse 15. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. What a piece of work. She didn't get what she wanted, and now she falsely accuses Joseph. She cries out to the men of the household, tells them, makes up this story, this fabricated story, tells them that it was actually Joseph who came into her, and if it wasn't for me crying out, this would have happened. And then she tells the same story to her husband in verses 17 and 18. When he gets home, she tells him the same thing. But I want you to notice the language she's using here. In verse 14, she tells the men, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. Then in verse 17, she tells Potiphar, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. In both verses, she refers to Joseph as a Hebrew and then as a Hebrew servant. She doesn't use his name. She merely refers to him as a Hebrew. One commentator notes, Potiphar's wife seems to employ Hebrew as a form of name calling, a derogatory epithet against Joseph's heritage. So not only does she call him a Hebrew slave, but she insinuates 
that Potiphar is at fault here. I mean, he's the one. You brought this Hebrew slave among us to laugh at us. Verse, eight, verse 17, ultimately, to laugh at me. So she insinuates that Potiphar's at fault, but ultimately she accused Joseph of attempting to bring reproach, dishonor upon Potiphar's entire household, especially upon her, the wife of Potiphar. She's accusing him of attempting to do something disgraceful and humiliating. And as she falsely states, if not for her crying out, crying out as the victim, if she didn't do that, and then Joseph fleeing, he would have brought disgrace upon this household. This woman, as I said earlier, is a real piece of work. She did not get what she wanted, and now she's bearing false witness against a man who has been faithful to her husband and ultimately faithful to God. Back in verse nine again, he said, whenever she tempted him, he is not greater in this house than I am. So Potiphar, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. Joseph has honored the covenant of marriage. He honored his master. He was faithful and he was also faithful to God. How then could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So she bears false witness against him. And as I'm sure you know, bearing false witness is forbidden by the Mosaic law, by God's law. In fact, this belongs to the moral law. So we could say that Potiphar's wife actually knows this was wicked because as we learn from Romans 2.15, that the law is written on our hearts but also, although she knew the truth, she rejects the truth. She suppresses it. She's no lover of God. She doesn't love God's righteousness. Therefore, she hurls false accusations against Joseph. And these false accusations, they carry a lot of weight. I mean, who is Potiphar going to side with? I mean, you know the story, but thinking about it, with fresh eyes here, who would Potiphar side with? His Egyptian wife or his Hebrew slave? There were no witnesses. Remember, no one was in the house. So it'd be a he said, she said anyways. And who would he believe? We could say Potiphar was in a tough spot here. It'd be very difficult to get all the information needed if he did try to go and investigate. But how could he then, if he did have the information, how could he go against his wife? I mean, this just reminds us that one, God is the only one who can truly judge in righteousness. He sees all, he knows all, So he has all the information. He is righteous. He's impartial. So he alone can discern rightly. So while we see the limitations of man when it comes to judging and discerning rightly, 
This also shows us the severity of bearing false witness. I mean, I, I don't know how much thought you give to this, especially to your, if your children give much thought to this. Um, I live in a household where information is oftentimes left out. But that can be severe. Because if we were to quickly take the word of the one who spoke first, the other could get in serious trouble. That is very light compared to what we have here. Her words here are serious. And you think about what happens here as she bears false witness. What is going to happen to Joseph? I mean, Potiphar's wife is lying and she knows she's lying. There's no way she's all of a sudden convinced herself. I mean, she's a piece of work, but, but there's no way she's convinced herself that she's telling the truth here. I mean, she is lying and knows she's lying and knows what it is she's doing. Bearing false witness against a man and sending him to prison. Potiphar's wife has a lot of sway with her husband and her false accusation will greatly impact Joseph's life. I mean, in this situation, the liar is believed and Joseph's life is impacted greatly. Yes, he is already a slave, but he's now about to be thrown back into the pit. Remember, he was thrown into a pit by his brothers. Now he's about to be thrown back into the pit, into prison. Because Pharaoh's wife falsely accused Joseph of trying to violate her. So while this account shows us the danger of bearing false witness, since her accusations are untrue, we know there are other times when someone is truly a victim, but their voice is not heard. So what do we do when we are brought these allegations? As God-fearing men and women, what should we do when serious accusations like this are brought to our attention, whether it be in the home as parents or in moments where there might be an accusation such as the one that Potiphar's wife makes against Joseph? What should we do? Well, first of all, we should be quick to listen. As we learn from James 1.19, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. We should not be dismissive of serious accusations. We should be concerned and we should care for the one bringing forth the accusation. That's the first thing. Now, I'm not saying that these are, these are really go hand in hand. It's not do one, then do the other. Second, while we must not be dismissive and while we must be quick to hear, we must not be quick to judge. Now, there are times when we need to act quickly and contact civil servants, but we'll leave that discussion for another time. But for now, let me just say we must avoid being quick to judge. As Proverbs 18, 17 teaches us, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. How many times have you overreacted, judged quickly, and then felt like a fool later on because you heard the other side of the story and you realized there's a whole lot more going on here than I initially thought, right? Probably happened to every single one of you. It's happened to me. It happens all the time. It happens especially in parenting, but it happens in so many situations. We have a party where this is the trustworthy party, at least in our minds, and we're quick to take their word for it without examining the other side. 
Therefore, we must be wise. We must not be dismissive. So we hear accusations, but we must not make a judgment without examination. More could be said here, but I'll leave that with those two biblical principles there. But what do we do when false accusations are hurled our way? So as we receive, if we're made, people are bringing false accusations to us, we have biblical warrant here of how to handle that. But what do we do when false accusations are made against us? I'm sure you've been on the receiving end of that. People are saying something falsely accusing you. What do we do? Well, many of you are familiar with Charles Spurgeon. I know that's a, a household name to many. Um, you may not really, may, maybe you do, but maybe you don't. You may not realize that he was the recipient of many false accusations and insults. Um, I mean, it was in the newspaper, thing, nasty things were said about him throughout the newspapers, things like that. Well, here's what he had to say about false accusations. If any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. If he charges you falsely on some point, be satisfied. For if he knew you better, he might change the accusation and you would be no gainer by the correction. If you have your moral portrait painted and it is ugly, be satisfied for it only needs a few blacker touches and it would be nearer to the truth. So Spurgeon pointed out in words that Spurgeon, only Spurgeon could use, when people slander us and hurl accusations against us, their accusations actually don't go far enough according to what is truly within us. So while we need to be wise in dealing with accusations made against others, when false accusations are made against us, we should not think so highly of ourselves and think that we deserve a good reputation. This doesn't mean that we confess to sins or to crimes that we didn't commit. Why? That would be to bear false witness. So we're not confessing to something that is not true. But we must remember that we're not entitled to a good reputation. Just think about Jesus Christ. He was without sin. Yet he was slandered and reviled and criticized. All sorts of false accusations were thrown against him. Yes, some of those accusations were true. He's claiming to be God. That was true, but many false accusations were thrown against him. You're casting out demons by by Satan, by Beelzebul. Many false accusations were made against him. But in response, he did not revile when reviled. He did not threaten when he suffered. He continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. You see, we can become so consumed with ourselves and think that we're entitled to this or that. And when we find ourselves doing that, it's because we're beholding ourselves instead of the glory of Christ. You know, many of us are so terrified of being humiliated, of being found out. Think about it. Jesus Christ 
Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ was humiliated on our behalf. We often think so highly of ourselves when we forget about Jesus who humbled himself. We look to our own interests, whereas Christ Jesus looked to the interest of others and was humiliated. We're terrified of that. We're terrified of being found out. But we need not be terrified of being exposed. You know why? God knows you inside and out. You are naked before him. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And for those who are in Christ, he accepts you. He is your father. You are his children. He knows us better than we know ourselves, yet we are accepted by him in Christ Jesus. So when false accusations are thrown our way, don't be angry, for you really are far worse than that person knows you to be, but you're accepted by God through Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. That's the gospel truth. That is the sweet promise of the gospel. That's the sweet promise we read about in Psalm 103 earlier, that our sins are forgiven, his righteousness becomes ours, and we now are accepted by God. So when they slander us, remember Christ, who was slandered, who was reviled, but did not revile in return. Now these gospel promises are sweet, But these gospel promises do not make false accusations any less serious or any less grave. False accusations are still serious. They're severe, as we are reminded here in verses 19 and 20. Potiphar is going to act upon his wife's accusations and throw Joseph into prison. When he heard of these things, in verse 19, when he heard these things, his Anger at the very end of the verse. His anger was kindled. He was incensed. He was outraged. I'm sure he was a mixed bag of emotion because he trusted Joseph. How could Joseph do this to me? How could Joseph do this to my wife when I'm gone? Wait, I'm going to lose him? I'm being blessed through him. So he's angry. He's mad. He's upset. And what does he do in verse 20? He takes Joseph, puts him into the prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined. We know the facts. We know that Joseph is falsely imprisoned here. We know that Joseph should not be in prison because we know that Joseph does right and subsequently Potiphar's wife hates him and she falsely accuses him. And now Potiphar listens to the voice of his wife. He's angry and he takes Joseph and throws him in to prison. So as I've noted several times, Throughout the Joseph cycle, Joseph is a type of Christ. But while he is a type, he is only a type. For as we know, Joseph was not sinless. Jesus Christ was without sin. Joseph lived a righteous life. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. Joseph did not volunteer to be forsaken by his brothers and then by Potiphar. Jesus did. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, willingly assumed human flesh that he might die on the cross. And he willingly endured the cross and was forsaken by his Father. 
the righteous one suffered greatly. Yet you know what you will not find in the New Testament as you read about Jesus' suffering? You will not find him asking this question, why do the righteous suffer? You're not gonna hear him grumbling or complaining, saying, why do the wicked get away with murder, yet the righteous suffer greatly? And neither will you find Joseph asking that question. He too is suffering unjustly, but he doesn't complain. He doesn't say, why do the righteous suffer? Why do the wicked get away with murder? Joseph doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't do that. And this is a good place to to stop and ponder. Because you know your, your response to suffering reveals a lot about what's in your heart. Our response to our circumstances, especially difficult circumstances, reveals what is in us. When bad things come, when things go against us, we sometimes think, is this really my reward for being faithful? I've done all this for you, God, and this is how I'm rewarded? But think about what Jesus says. You only do what is expected of you. You're only doing what was your duty so how, therefore, how can we expect to be rewarded when we're just doing what we're supposed to do? So we get upset when bad things come. We get offended when things happen that we don't like. And, and this happens in the church. This happens in the local church. A number of people will leave churches even disgruntled because they elevate their own desires. They expect to be rewarded by God with a trouble-free life, especially in the local church. But thanks be to God that he does not abandon us when we offend him. Thanks be to God that Christ did not abandon ship when his very own disciples denied him, scattered because they didn't want to be associated with him. Remember, dire circumstances reveal what is in your heart. It reveals what is in our hearts. And as we think about the cross of Christ, think about what was in him. The cross reveals to us that Jesus continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And as we learn from Hebrews 12, his eyes were on the joy that was set before him. So he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he's now seated at the right hand of God. So coming back to the question I I asked at the beginning of the sermon, why do the righteous suffer injustice? Well, first of all, the righteous suffer injustice because Christ suffered injustice. We have to acknowledge that apart from suffering, there would be no righteousness for us. Apart from the suffering of Christ, there would be no double exchange. Our sin would not be credited to him. And subsequently, his righteousness would not be credited to us. But that's not all. For we who are counted righteous in Christ, we suffer as a reminder that nothing will separate us from the steadfast love of God. Just think about Joseph's situation. He's a slave, he's in Egypt. He rises up the ranks. He's in Potiphar's household. He's rising up the ranks. 
because the Lord was with him and now what? He's in prison. But as Richard Belcher Jr. notes in his commentary, the evil intention of Potiphar's wife and the adverse circumstances of prison could not separate Joseph from the Lord's presence or from his blessing. In verse 20, we've already seen it. He was thrown into prison, but then in verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph. God himself is with Joseph as Joseph is in the confines of prison. And not only do we see that the Lord was with Joseph, but we see that he showed him steadfast love. The steadfast love of the Lord was with Joseph while he was in prison. This reminds us that Joseph's hope, our hope, is not in our circumstances or our abilities. Our hope is in the Lord whose steadfast love endures forever. Throughout the Psalms, and we've even read it this morning, but throughout the Psalms, we hear, we hear numerous references to the steadfast love of the Lord. In Psalm 33:22, we read, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Psalm 44, 26, rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. In Psalm 51, 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Then there's Psalm 136, which repeats this phrase 26 times. His steadfast love endures forever. If you have forgotten that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever, go read Psalm 136. By the end of that Psalm, you will see over and over and over and over that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And while there are many more references to the steadfast love of the Lord in the Psalms, perhaps the most fitting reference for us today is Psalm 3210. David says, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And then this is followed by an appeal to rejoice, to shout for joy. But consider these words again. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Think about Potiphar's wife. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Externally speaking, it often looks like the wicked are prospering. Like they're getting away with murder. Potiphar's wife looks like she's getting away with everything. But God's word is not to be misunderstood. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. I mean, just think about her for a moment. She's not satisfied with her husband. She wanted more. She's certainly not satisfied in the Lord. She was not a God-fearing woman. And so when Joseph rejected her, what do we see? The wickedness of her heart is exposed. It comes out. She's full of sorrow and sadness. She wanted more and more and more, yet she did not get what she wanted. She's an illustration of Psalm 32.10, at least the first part. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast 
love. The second half, steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Joseph, on the other hand, trusts in the Lord. His life has exemplified that. And as we read here in verse 21 of chapter 39, but the Lord was with Joseph and he showed him steadfast love. Joseph lost family, lost his freedom. Now he's in prison, yet the Lord is with him. He is surrounded by the steadfast love of the Lord. Joseph reminds us, God has revealed, given us this account to remind us that our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in the Lord. He is the true treasure and nothing will separate us from his love. I love quoting Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor present things nor, pre- nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation So anything, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There's nothing that will separate the covenant children of the Lord from our Lord. And Joseph is a witness to this as he's thrown into prison. The Lord is with him and he shows him steadfast love. The Lord is protecting him. He's caring for him. And then as we see in the rest of verse 21, He gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So this brings us right back to where we were at the beginning of this chapter. God gave Joseph favor before Potiphar. In verse four, we see Joseph found favor in his sight. And now here, we see in verse 21 that he gained favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the prison keeper in verse 22 put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners. And at the end of verse 22, we read, whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. Very similar to what happened with Potiphar. Joseph is given charge of everything. In fact, as we see in verse 23, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Remember, Potiphar, same thing. Why? Because the Lord was with him. Joseph is in prison and he's prospering while in prison just as he did when he was enslaved to Potiphar. God has given him favor in the sight of these men and causing him to prosper to get him exactly where he's supposed to be. It is God's will for Joseph to get to Pharaoh. And just think about, we're going to draw this out in the weeks to come, but just think about what God does to orchestrate these events. He placed Joseph in Potiphar's house. Potiphar, captain of the guard. So whenever he is falsely accused by Potiphar, he's going to be thrown into the prison with the king's prisoners. And he's going to eventually meet up with a couple of guys who work for the king, who work for Pharaoh. And eventually, one of them will remember him. It'll be time. There, there's 13 years that, that go between Joseph being sold into slavery and before the time he comes before Pharaoh. So many years take place here, but eventually he'll be remembered and he will be introduced to the king of Egypt. 
As George Lawson notes, while they, so being Potiphar and his wife, were most egregiously violating God's commandments, they were fulfilling his counsels. So this narrative concludes with Joseph right where God would have him. Joseph's thrown into the pit, now he's thrown into prison. Yet as this chapter emphasizes, the Lord was with him. We see this explicitly stated, verse 2, verse 21, verse 23, the Lord was with him. And this is not a consolation prize. It's not as though Joseph missed out on the world and now he just, he gets God. That's not the case. This is the prize. Joseph received the prize. And his suffering has surely reminded him that if he loses it all and still has God, then he has everything. For God is all in all. God is everything and in everything. God is most glorious. God is the greatest treasure. And he's revealed himself to us. He, the greatest treasure, has revealed himself to us in the face of Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, you know the story of Mary and Martha? Mary understood the treasure of knowing Christ. She was sitting at his feet while Martha was slaving in the kitchen, slaving to get things ready. And so she was distracted with much serving and she said to Jesus, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve all alone? Tell her then to help me. And how does Jesus respond? He says, Martha, Martha, you're anxious. You're troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. The good portion is Jesus Christ. Abiding with him, being with him, because it's in the face of Jesus Christ that we see God who truly satisfies our longing souls. Therefore, in Christ, we can flee from temptation because God is worth it. The fleeting pleasures of this world are not worth it, God is. He has so much in store for those who love him, so much more than this world could offer. And because God is worth it, we can endure false accusations. Remember what Spurgeon said, if anyone thinks ill of you, don't be angry for you are far worse than he thinks you to be. But in Christ, you know how you are referred to, you know what you're called in Christ? Saints. You are called a saint, not because you are inherently good, but because of God's grace. He knows what's in you, yet he calls, him, he calls you to himself. And because God is worth it, we can not only endure false accusations, but we can endure suffering for righteousness' sake. As Jesus said, a servant is not above his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And when we see the disciples in Acts chapter 5 being beaten in the name of Jesus, you know what they did? They rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, the disciples weren't morbid. They did not enjoy persecution for persecution's sake. They rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer alongside their master. And they rejoiced because Christ 
is worth it. Therefore, the righteous suffer as a reminder that our only hope is in God and that He is the greatest treasure. And it's not the idea of God that is the treasure. It is God Himself who is present among His people who, as we see here, the steadfast love of the Lord was with Joseph. And as we see in Psalm 32, the steadfast love of the Lord surrounds those who trust in the Lord. Now, there are some of you here today who do not know God, who actually would say it's foolish to suffer for righteousness' sake. But I pray that the Lord would open your eyes to the infinite worth of Christ and that you would see that there's great gain to be had in Christ. Therefore, along with the scriptures, along with God, along with the, the, those who've gone before us for many centuries, I beg you to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow Jesus Christ. I call you to lose your life for the sake of Christ, because there you will find it. In Christ, you will find life. There is nothing that you will give up that you will say, I wish I would have kept on to that. I wish I would have held on to that because everything will be gained in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, come before you in Christ's name. We thank you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your word and we thank you for sending your son. I pray that our souls would sing out. We would cry out with praise to your glorious name. Because it's not in us. It's in Christ Jesus our Lord that we've been considered righteous. That we've been brought before your throne. Therefore, help us in this present evil age to endure all that comes our way because you are with us and nothing will separate us from your love. Help us to remember this and to know this and to encourage one another in these truths. In Jesus' name.